Acts 5, verses 33 through 42. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. By the way, I'll just set the stage. This is um, after the Sanhedrin has ordered the apostles not to preach. They sent them to jail. An angel supernaturally allowed them to escape from jail. And the Sanhedrin went back and got them again. And this is what is taking place. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, probably a false messiah, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had, were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we are grateful for the example of the apostles, for their bravery, their courage, their faithfulness to the gospel, and it sets before us an example. And I ask that we might all consider that example as we live out our own lives, be challenged by it, and think in terms of how we might give of ourselves for the mandate that you've given us. Lord, we come here acknowledging we need you desperately. May this not just be some perfunctory attendance at church, but may you truly work in us supernaturally, transform perspectives, transform our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We read our story in Acts 5, and perhaps we are tempted to think that, well, you know, those kinds of things happened long ago, but that kind of persecution is not taking place today. Unfortunately, if that's what you think, you would be wrong. Consider that on July 20th, 2016, Vladimir Putin approved a law for Russia under the guise of anti-terrorism that prohibits sharing your faith in homes online, or anywhere that's not recognized as a church building. To share your faith in Russia, you have to secure a government permit through a registered religious organization, and it has to be done in an approved building. House churches are illegal. In China last year, a pastor's wife was buried by a bulldozer as she and her husband tried to protect the church from being destroyed, demolished via a government order. 
She was pushed into a ditch and buried alive as horrified congregants watched helplessly. Today, Christians, Christianity has become the most persecuted religion where out of five people killed for religious reasons, four of them are Christians, said Hungary's minister for human resources, Zoltan Belog. He continued, in 81 countries around the world, Christians are persecuted and 200 million Christians live in areas where they are discriminated against. Millions of Christian lives are threatened by followers of radical religious ideologies. I wanted to read a quote from somebody other than American because when people talk about religious persecution, uh, what I hear is that uh, this is just sour grapes from people who've been in the preferred status for so long they don't like being a minority now. So such is not the case. The religious persecution to Christianity is real. The fact is that America is experiencing an upheaval on the college campus and public schools and in the political sector where religion is now just tolerated, whereas before it was embraced, this idea of just tolerating religion instead of really embracing it as a necessary fabric of our society, that's really something that was foreign to our founders. Benjamin Rush, one of the early founders who participated in the Continental Congress and also signed the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, you can find quotes like these just a dime a dozen, but let me just read it for you. Benjamin Rush. The only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. And he went on to say this. Now, just imagine, can you imagine a politician standing up and saying this today? This is what he said. Christianity is the only true and perfect religion, and that in proportion as mankind adopts its principles and obeys its precepts, they will be wise and happy. See, what we have enjoyed in American history is, in fact, unique, though seemingly now short-lived. From a biblical perspective, we have to realize this, that freedom to speak of the gospel without government interference, that is not a guaranteed right. In fact, it's quite the opposite. To operate as a Christian with the expectation of no opposition or no persecution is really a kind of religious entitlement. That again, we are not guaranteed. In fact, we are told something quite different. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So it lets us know the heart of the matter. But then 2 Timothy says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Acts is not only the genesis of the church, but it's also the genesis of something else that walks right alongside the church. And that is suffering, persecution. In our passage today, 
we read of three different responses to the truth, to the gospel. And the first is open hostility. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the hostility is now full-blown on the apostles. When the Jewish authorities heard that the apostles were at the temple conveying the gospel, it says that they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The word for enraged actually means to saw in two. I mean, their, their anger cut them through the heart. And what they wanted was to execute them. In fact, we read in verse 40 that after Gamaliel convinced the council not to kill them, they had them beaten. So, I don't know about you, but when it comes on the hostility scale, I would say beaten and wanting to kill, that's pretty high on the hostility scale, wouldn't you say? We cannot be surprised at this. And we cannot be surprised at opposition that we might face for our faith. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What? What? Persecution? Suffering? I can't believe this. I mean, seriously? They hated him. Why would they not hate us? Now, when I say persecution and suffering, please understand, I'm not talking about people disliking you because you're jerky, okay? So, if, you know, if we are toads when we talk to other people, write that down, don't be a toad, okay? If, then that, that's not biblical persecution. I'm talking about when you're really standing up for, you know, a biblical worldview or you're speaking of the gospel and people, you know, oppose that. That's really what I'm talking about. But what is it? that causes people to stand up for something that they really believe in. We have to expect that we're going to face suffering. We can't feel entitled. We can't just all the time try to escape it. I mean, what is it that motivates people to be willing to accept suffering? I think of Martin Luther King and all that he had to endure with all the death threats. Why would he do all the things that he did to jeopardize his family? I mean, his, his, his uh, home got firebombed. Why would you be willing to do that? Because there was, there was a mandate. There was something bigger than himself that he was willing to accomplish. It's like he was on a life mission. He had a mandate. Remember the young Palestinian girl, um, Malayla Yushafzi, who... Um, stood up to the Taliban in her native country. She was an advocate for educating women. And the, the Taliban tried to assassinate her, put a, put a bullet in her head, and somehow she survived. And she later uh, continued on with her efforts, and she became the youngest ever Nobel Prize laureate at 17. People do such things in the midst of open hostility, only when they are driven by a mandate. And I can't think of a greater mandate, a greater mission than the gospel. Can you? Consider modern day Hassan John, who's a pastor from Nigeria, has a bounty on his head put there by Muslim terrorists. 
He's seen some of his friends shot right before him, some of his friends injured, tortured right before him. He's escaped bombings to try to kill him. Uh, Yet he continues, reaching out to Muslims, going into their homes, communicating the gospel. Why? Because the gospel mandate that he has supersedes any desire he has for self-preservation or comfort. Driven by a mandate bigger than self in that open hostility. Here's another response we see to the gospel besides open hostility. It's calculating prudence. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, who's Gamaliel? Well, He was related to one of the most famous of all Jewish teachers, Hillel. And rabbinic uh, tradition gave Gamaliel the title of Nasi, N-A-S-I, or president of the high court. In fact, the uh, Mishnah, which is a, a written version of the Jewish oral traditions, said of him this. Listen to these words. When Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died... The glory of the Lord ceased, and purity and abstinence died. Wow. You might also remember who was one of his students. Saul of Tarsus sat at Gamaliel's feet. So when it came to present-day Jews during that time, Gamaliel was at the top of the list. Now, he was a revered man. His word carried a lot of weight. Now, he was also a Pharisee. And remember, the Pharisees were the minority, and the Sadducees were the majority on the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court. The Sadducees, they kind of ran the temple. Their influence ran politically with Rome, but the Pharisees had favor with the people or the populace. So Gamaliel tells the apostles, step outside, I want to have a few words with the Sanhedrin, and he then proceeds to give the Sanhedrin two examples of Thutis and Judas. Now, Thutis was a common name. There could have been a lot of guys running around that that he was talking about. There is one that's talked about by Josephus, one of the early Jewish historians who speaks of a Thutis, but it wasn't the same one. And and that Thutis, though, was a guy that was beheaded by Rome because he took took away some Jews to follow some little cult-like action. The, the timing doesn't work out. So, frankly, we don't know much about this Thutis that's spoken about in Acts other than what Gamaliel says about him. So, apparently, he had a following, and he met an untimely death. Now, we do know more about Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee led a rebellion against Rome, and he was later crucified for it. Have you ever heard of the Jewish zealots? He started 
the whole, it was kind of his movement, his rebellion that started the zealot movement. And later Rome would wage all-out war against the zealots. But the point for Gamaliel is that these two men, Thutis and Judas, had ignoble endings. And so would the apostles if they are not of God. Now at first, Gamaliel's words seem like, well, you know, that sounds right. That sounds wise. That sounds fair. But if you step back and take a long view and look at his position, you realize he's really failing to acknowledge the truth of what the apostles were espousing in terms of the gospel. And listen, neutrality is not a good choice when it comes to the gospel. Wait and see is not a smart choice. Because what you're implying is that the evidence is not convincing. I mean, really? Look at all the miracles of Jesus Christ. Now remember, at the time that Gamaliel is speaking of this, there are plenty of people around who saw all the miracles of Jesus. Plenty of people walking around who saw the resurrection, the ascension. They saw the life that Jesus lived. They knew that his coming fulfilled the prophecies given in the Old Testament. It was plain for anybody who would open their eyes to those things. Besides, they saw the miracles of of the uh, of Pentecost. They heard of the, the angels opening up the doors, allowing the apostles to escape. Not enough evidence? I don't think so. See, Gamaliel belongs to the crowd where the most convincing evidence does not convince. They still demand more evidence, more signs, as if God has not done enough. And so when a person says they need more like that, they're either ignorant of the facts that exist or they don't want to look at the facts that exist. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, one part of Gamaliel's argument that might make sense is the fact that you cannot stop God's sovereign plan, though people may deny it, though they may try to silence the gospel, you're not going to stop God. But I think there's an error in the thinking of Gamaliel here, and that is that if something is of God, it will automatically be successful. That if something is a lie, that it will not succeed. It will not move on. That's simply not the case. Mark Twain said that a lie can run around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. (laughs) See, in the end, I believe God's truth will be victorious in an eternal sense. But while on earth, Satan's got great influence with a multitude of people. And are there not religions that are growing, that are against the gospel, that are against the truth of Scripture? I mean, just consider Islam, Hinduism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, all at odds with the Scripture, with the gospel. 
Yet, these have multitudes of people, a part of them. And conversely, Bible-believing churches, many have closed. And the fact is, we could go further with this. Is it not the truth that even those who claim Christianity, so-called Christian charlatans, that they can prosper? I mean, you see churches, you see organizations that use unsavory means to gain people and to gain money. And it works. Listen, success is not a test of truth. Success is not the test of truth. We have to all be discerning. God gives us his word in which we can measure movements, measure religions, any faith communities. We are responsible to do all we can to love well, to plan, to speak truth. But in the end, it's God who gives the growth. It's God in his sovereignty who blesses. Growth is not a carte blanche stamp of approval from God. Right? It's just simply not true. Also, consider this. If Gamaliel's most famous student was Saul of Tarsus, and we know that Saul went around murdering Christians, why didn't Gamaliel get in his grill and say, hey, Saul, stop this? We don't know for sure why that didn't take place. But we do know this. We do do know that Gamaliel used calculating prudence that kept him from affirming the truth that the apostles were espousing in the gospel. I mean, there are people who may appear on the outside not to be direct enemies of Christ. They might be close to the truth. They traffic around it, but they're lost. And one thing is missing to people who hold off on making a decision who, you know, I just need more evidence. One thing I think that you'll find across the board that is missing, and that is this. They forget their desperate position. They, they cannot acknowledge how desperate they are in their sin. And that the, the only provision that we have for our desperate condition is Jesus Christ and the gospel. So this calculating prudence, weight, this neutrality, not a good decision. It really is ultimately a rejection of the truth of the gospel. Lastly, what a contrast as we read verses 40 through 42. This is a humble and enthusiastic cooperation. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When they left the presence of the council rejoicing, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I mean, once the apostles came back in from going outside, Gamaliel had his deal with the Sanhedrin. They came back in. Apparently, the council proceeded to flog them because flogging was basically the common punishment that they used to make a point with somebody. And by the way, when they flogged people, it was 39 lashes with their chest bare. They were in a kneeling position. They had straps of calf hide. And for 
for every stroke across the chest. There were two across the back, 39 lashes. Some men were known to have died from this kind of lashing, this kind of beating. And by the way, did you know that this was a fulfillment of prophecy? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. I don't know about you, but man, I wish I could have been with those apostles at that time as they were leaving that facility. What would their conversation have been like? What would our conversation be like? I mean, we've just been beaten. We're bleeding. We're in excruciating pain. We're, we're yearning for our wounds to be healed and tended to. We want to get some rest. I mean, what would you say? Might you curse those who beat you? Would you think about how you're going to gather together and protect yourselves and maybe run away to some other land? Would you talk about forming some rebellion? Would not self-preservation and comfort be preeminent in your mind? That wasn't the case for these guys. And I don't want to think that, man, they're just way out there so in front of us. I have to believe that if we had to experience that kind of persecution, that God would give us what we needed in that moment but that we understood our mandate. So I think we have to circulate these things through our head and hearts now so if a day ever comes, we'll say, hey, you know what? I remember we, we've talked about this. I've prepared my heart for this. I'm willing, I'm willing to go through this. William Temple said that the Christians are called to be the, called to the hardest of all tasks to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God grant it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. Rejoicing that they had the privilege to suffer for Christ. And what did they do after this? They didn't complain about their enemies. They didn't boast about their faithfulness. They didn't defend their character. They didn't do that. They went right back testifying about the risen Christ, the very thing that they were forbidden to do. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not even believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Every day they preached, every day they went back to the temple, right where the Sanhedrin could see them, and every day they went from house to house communicating the gospel. Wow. Man, I, I look at myself and I look at what, you know, as a church, how could we arrive at being prepared to give such a humble and enthusiastic response to the truth? And I think it starts with understanding we have a clear gospel mandate upon our lives. It's a mandate. Our mandate is not the American dream. Our mandate is not to gobble up as much stuff as I can, not to consume as much as I possibly can. My mandate is not, oh, I'm, I, I want to be happy. I want to be comfortable. I'm not saying it's wrong to be happy or comfortable. That's just not our mandate. 
It's not, just not what drives me. My life is to be deeply rooted in the gospel. It's not, it's not just my message, it's my life. And you know, I, I think it, it, it bleeds down into everything that we do. And uh, I was recounting this week, reflecting on a conversation I had with a friend. And, and I was reflecting later about the conversation, and I realized that I was telling a story to make myself look good. I mean, let's face it. Sometimes, you know, we want to be seen as adventurous. We want to be seen as strong or... You know, we want to be seen as funny. And we kind of create our own echo chamber, justifying, you know, our feeling of superiority. And that's what I was doing. And this tendency is not only shallow and narrow, but it's incredibly self-centered and sinful. And I had to later just, you know, bring that before the Lord and bring that to my, uh, to my friend. But basically what I'm operating on is, okay, more of me and less of him. That's, that's the mandate. But the gospel switches that. Does it not? The gospel is more of him, less of me. It reverses the trend. I humble myself before God. And I realize after that episode this week, I just get back on the horse and I realized my task before me as a servant leader and that my life is not my own. And it's really the same place each of us have to come to. Our lives are not our own. It's more of him, less of me. So here's my invitation to you. That we accept a gospel lifestyle. Now, when I say that, I'm not following it up with, and live your best life now. You can get so much more. Look at the healing. Look at the money. Look how big. We're great. Join the crowd. Be a part of us. It's so wonderful. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless and by the way, it's always those kind of statements. Don't think I'm knocking somebody in particular. I'm not. Because I think we're prone to the exact same stuff. I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about other guys. All right? It's us. But what I'm saying is the gospel that we present, the gospel that we're conveying, are we really inviting people to be faithful disciples and saying, come to Christ and you're going to live a life of suffering. Come to Christ and give up comfort, give up the American dream as the mandate of your life. Come to Christ and die to self. That is the gospel lifestyle. And that is my invitation to you. Come to Christ and be willing to joyfully suffer. I don't know what's up ahead in our country. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not saying God told me. I just don't think it's going to get much better. That's just an opinion. That's just, you know, 
I don't know what's going to happen for my kids and my grandkids. I can tell you that I've kind of lost my optimism from an earthly standpoint because my hope is not in the political spectrum, is not hope that some political leader is going to put it all back together. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. It's broken. I don't see it getting fixed until Jesus comes back. That's just, now, I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm just trying to be a realist, but that's my hope. And that's, I think, where we have to attach our hearts to and say, all right, Lord, I want to do anything, everything you've asked me to do to live out this lifestyle. And what it means is, you know what it means? It comes right down to changing our conversations just like it did for me there. It comes down to how I'm viewing my relationships, how I'm, how I'm working on my job. See, it gets very, very practical. I invite you to be a follower of Christ and to accept whatever comes joyfully. Let's pray.